From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. We're extremely excited to be joined by today's guest. He is an active member of the Committee for Writers with Disabilities at the Writers Guild of America West. He's a writer on the new hit Netflix show, Waffles and Mochi. He's an educator, a consultant, an activist, one of the coolest people I know, Mr. David Radcliffe. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's nice to talk with you. How are you holding up? It's been it's been a couple years since we've seen each other in the flesh. Yeah, I think so. But this year doesn't count. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's seeing anybody. Totally. It's a challenging time, I think, for a lot of folks. As you mentioned in the intro, I'm part of the Disabilities Committee at the Guild, and it's a challenging time for a lot of folks with disabilities right now because a lot of people are high risk in that category. And there's also some strange benefits coming out of this coronavirus environment too, because now Mm -hmm. so much is happening virtually that makes things a lot more accessible to people. So it's kind of been a a mixed bag of a year because there's a lot more access, but a lot more fear as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fear and obviously people dealing with a lot of loss, but it it has been an opportunity to kind of reevaluate the way that we can approach, you know, our society. Yeah. If there's a way to to do it, that's a little bit better. Yeah. Some kind of hybrid. I hope some of this stuff sticks, you know, for sure. I was able to speak to a couple of college classes the other day or or last week in um, Texas and New York and everything was so, has been so acclimated towards virtual life that it made all that a lot easier than, you know, flying around the country, even though I do miss traveling places. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like anywhere, (laughs) like Burbank. (laughs) Before we get into the new show, I just want to talk a little bit about your background, you know, you kind of working your way up through the ranks as a writer and some of the challenges you faced in particular, you trying to work your way up through the writer's rooms in Hollywood, which are difficult to work your way up in any instance, but you had some, you know, particular challenges. If you want to kind of give us a little backstory to yeah, so, how you got into yeah, it. Yeah, I have cerebral palsy, which for those that don't know, I mean, I guess a, a good example is Walter Jr. on Breaking Bad. That's the example I point to a lot, which is helpful. It's helpful to have representation because now I don't have to explain it. I can just point to the show. But I use crutches or, or a wheelchair to get around. When I finished film school, most of the common knowledge about getting into the industry, if you wanted to work in television, was you had to be an assistant first, which is a physically can be a physically demanding job. And so originally I went out on the interviews for those sorts of jobs and I would come in and, you know, sit alongside eager, non-disabled people (laughs) and think, you know, I'm probably not going to get picked for this coffee running job or (laughs) moving the car for somebody. And, you know, after a handful of those, I stopped going out for those jobs because it kind of became a, a pattern. And I started writing in other forms. I wrote for magazines for a long time. I've done some public speaking and writing speeches for people and kind of built my own little business. And then a couple of years ago, I got into the Disney writing program, which I had been a finalist for long ago. And this time I got in, I think some of these programs are now finally looking at disability as a diversity aspect, which is great because if the two pathways into the business are often being an assistant or getting into one of these programs, the assistant route is 
more or less closed off to a lot of us. So getting into these programs is extra important. And through that program, I was able to get my first TV writing job on The Rookie on ABC, which is the cop drama with Nathan Fillion. Mm -hmm. And it was the first season and it was you know, very high profile. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things to learn in an environment like that. I got to spend a lot of time on set and learn the dynamics and the politics of a writer's room. And then after that job made the natural transition from cop drama to children's television show produced by the Obamas that has. Pop <laughs> right. So, so my, my brand is kind of uh, eclectic. And yes. now I'm developing a, a half hour comedy to try to go pitch later this year. So I have no idea who I am. It might be nice to find out one day, but I'm enjoying doing all kinds of different material. That's great, man. Hey, you know, join the club. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's part of why you get into a creative mode, right? Is to do different different sorts of things and learn and meet new people and bring your voice to, um, you know, different spaces. Absolutely. I think it was Scorsese who said, and this was recent, he was like, I'm still going to film school. He said, I will forever be a student of film because, you know, everything's continually evolving. You know, the technology is changing. The way that we consume entertainment is changing. You just kind of have to adapt. Plus Uh, on top of it, I mean, who knows how COVID is going to change the game all over again. My hope is that some of these changes allow other disabled people through the door. Because right now, within the Writers Guild, disabled people make up 0.7% of the guild, even though in the general population, we're about 20% of the population. So that explains partially why when we're represented on screen, we're not particularly represented well. (laughs) That is a staggering number, 0.7%. Yeah. And once you get your first couple jobs as a disabled person, you start to see why that is. There's a lot of like structural issues that folks haven't had to think about until, you know, you come along. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the benefit, I guess, of being a disabled person is you are a natural born problem solver. So there's a lot of things that you're figuring out. And then you have to do the job on top of the job. So you're figuring things out creatively for the show and also figuring things out for yourself. We're starting to see, and maybe it's just me, but it seems like in the last couple of years, we're starting to see some incremental progress with like some representation on screens, films and TV shows. How do you think we continue this progress? Because, you know, it's it's been minimal. It, it hasn't it hasn't been enough. And there's still yeah um, some hesitation. It's certainly it's certainly better than it was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's but I think in terms of how people get their material made, there's still a lot of barriers for disabled people because if you look at the success stories like Ryan O'Connell, who has his own show on Netflix called Special, mm-hmm. This Close, which was created by Shoshana Stern and Josh Feldman, who are both deaf, those were both kind of passion projects that they sort of had to find a way around the traditional systems to get through. Right. I think it's very rare that you would see a very like mainstream network show built around disabled people that was also created by disabled people. In fact, I can't think of an example <laughs> yeah. of that happening. And then on top of that, if you, if I were, for example, a disabled black woman, I mean, when was the last time you saw a disabled black woman on TV? Right. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. So there's all these like layers of both privilege and marginalization that I think still need to be unpacked. Absolutely. Which I now want to highlight the film Crip Camp, which, you know, we spoke with the directors, Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan last year, mm-hmm. which is now nominated for an Academy Award for yeah. Best Documentary Feature. You were a narration consultant on the film, were you not? I was. Yeah. So that was a, 
actually a cool benefit off the back of doing waffles and mochi because waffles and mochi and Crip Camp are both produced by Higher Ground Productions. Mm -hmm. And when I was finishing up on waffles and mochi, I was talking with an executive there and I was saying very sincerely, this waffles and mochi is one of the best jobs I've ever had. This was so much fun. And she said, she said, oh, you should come to our friends and family screening for our documentary that we're working on about the disability rights movement. And I was eager to do that. And then off of coming to that screening, I got to work with Jim and Nicole a little bit and get to know them and give my feedback on elements of the story or what to include or how to frame something, that sort of thing. It was kind of, it was, it was almost entirely by phone and it felt like more like just casual conversations about disability and our lives and representation and also the generational impact of, I am very much a beneficiary of the ADA because I was very young when it was passed. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jim Lebrecht and Judy Human had a different experience growing up that had physical obstructions and social obstructions that I have experienced, but to a much lesser degree because of the the impact of the ADA. So that was a cool thing to get to be a, a small, but very grateful part of. And if you guys have not seen Crip Camp, everybody listening, please go check it out. It is just one of the most incredible documentaries I've seen in the last decade. And I was blown away and slightly embarrassed about how little I knew of this story. We talk about it in the episode with Jim and Nicole, but you'd feel like this the passing of the ADA and what these people went through would be yeah. more readily available as information and like taught in the history books, like as a part of like a civil rights movement, because that's what it was. Right. And I think that in a strange way, the fact that the movie came out during COVID is like extra resonant because we are seeing the same sort of invisibility of the disabled community during conversations around COVID. So we talk about a lot about different disparities for different groups, but it's very rare that you see coverage on the news about how this is affecting the disabled community or the numbers of deaths that massively impact the disabled community. We don't have disabled newscasters on TV. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just, it's kind of a non-story. And I think that's part of why Crip Camp feels so, feels so different is because this story has been around for a while. It's been going on for generations and it's still a, a civil rights issue today, but it's not something that you would learn about in school. Right. I certainly didn't. So it was cool to be, I was at Sundance with them when it premiered and it was really cool to be around Judy in particular. I spent a lot of time with Judy and seeing people come up to her and discover who she is. Yeah. <laughs> like they were so excited to see the film and then talk with her. And Judy's been, you know, a very central figure in disability justice, disability rights for decades. So it was like, from my perspective, I thought it was kind of funny that so many people were discovering her now. Now she's got a book out and she's got a podcast and she deserves it. She's really terrific. Yeah. Put that woman on the $50 bill. <laughs> right. Get Ulysses' grant out of there. It's Judy Humans time. Right. right yeah. So switching gears now, I want to talk about this amazing and I mean, I mean, I don't want to say surprising because higher ground, like they do great work. I knew it would be a good kid show. I didn't realize how much I was going to enjoy this show. Mm-hmm. Like I did not have to watch <laughs> the whole season, David. I could have just watched the episode you wrote. Yeah, I yeah. watched the first episode and I was like, I'm going to watch this whole thing because yeah, that's great. Awesome. Yeah, that's um, thank you. We've been hearing that a lot. I've been getting a lot of great messages from folks who don't have kids or who don't feel like they're in the right age demo. And I was talking with a friend who works at another um, animation company 
and he was saying, man, my whole team is talking about waffles and mochi. <laughs> and that was, you know, gratifying. It was a really special environment. It was a fun project. For those who have not seen it, tell the audience a little bit about the show. Waffles and Mochi is kind of Sesame Street meets Anthony Bourdain. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) It is a a travel show. It's a half hour comedy show for families. And it's a travel show celebrating community and food and culture with these two puppet characters, Waffles and Mochi, who are best friends. And they're trying to learn how to be chefs. So in order to do that, they have to learn about a different food every episode and you know develop their skills and that means traveling around the world to learn about potatoes and tomatoes and rice and mushrooms and all kinds of fun stuff it's just so much fun and and legitimately funny like mm-hmm. i would watch the show with my like wireless headphones on that are connected to the apple tv <laughs> while, while sonia is working mm-hmm. and i would just start cracking up and she would look over and see me watching this, you know. Yeah, like, just watching puppets. <laughs> watching puppets. <laughs> yeah. I haven't even reached the, the weed hour yet. I'm already. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, higher ground does not endorse. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> but, but yeah. That's what I'm saying is you don't even need that. It, right, it's, right. It's still hilarious. I mean, Waffles and Mochi celebrates all kinds of organic uh, <laughs> that's <right>. yeah. opportunities. <laughs> it's, a, it's herbs. There's a, there's an episode that's on true. Spices and Herbs. <laughs> that's true. Yep. If you can, take us uh, into the writer's room and into kind of like the construction of these episodes because they do something really brilliant, which is like each episode highlights, you know, a particular food mm-hmm. or vegetable. And the theme, you know, of the episode is connected to the best quality of the food, which is so much fun. So take us into the writer's room of just about constructing this great format. Well, I think what you mentioned is absolutely true. I'm a big theme person myself. I really like trying to figure out the theme of something. Just by chance, this this was a show that was all about that and figuring out, you know, okay, we're telling a story about... I mean, you're kind of looking at it through three different lenses or multiple lenses. You're looking at it through the eyes of a kid. You're also looking at it through the lens of food and nutrition, but you also don't want to make the story really like, it doesn't feel like it's pushing nutrition on you, hopefully. Right. Um, Yeah. So we really did kind of come at it from a theme perspective. What are some feelings that kids typically go through? Okay. This is an episode about what happens when your best friend makes another friend Mm -hmm. and the kind of jealousy you might feel about, you know, not belonging anymore. And that was able to tie into the rice episode in a particular way because rice kind of belongs everywhere. So anytime we could link the history of a food to the emotional journey of the characters, it was a really special thing to to build out. We had a, a room, I think, of like seven writers. It was a fairly intimate environment, lots of fun conversation. And then we also had science and food advisors, like really smart people coming in to talk to us about different elements of food and science and how food interacts with your body. And then we would sort of parse through that information to find the emotional core of the episode and build a story around that. And you had mentioned that you were working on this, you know, pre-pandemic. Did you guys film this pre-pandemic as well? Or was that shot during 2020? I believe, although I'm not entirely sure, that the production side of it was finished before COVID hit. So as far as I can tell, we kind of like just got it out the door (laughs) in a way. Um, You know, and then obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of posts involved that I wasn't part of, but it's, um, you know, stitching together travel and animation and, you know, the puppetry. There's just so many. Part of the fun of watching it was just to see, even as someone who was involved with it, to see 
how it turned out, you know, because we can write, for example, there was a, an ongoing animated segment about the taste buds. Yes. This little like sitcom group of friends that are all animated, um, you know, taste bud personalities, but you don't really know what that's going to look like till the animators animate it. And so it was fun to see the result of that. Those taste bud cartoons are <laughs> awesome. There's one episode where they highlight, see, this was a cool thing, David it was like, I learned so much watching this show. Like I, yeah, I was I like, did. man, I'm learning a lot here. Yeah. I did too. To get it all into like, you know, 24 minutes or whatever it is. There's a lot yeah. of stuff that gets cut out. Obviously, like a lot of fun things that you can't squeeze into it. I want to talk about your episode in particular, which was a lot of fun. The episode you wrote was Mushrooms was mm -hmm. the highlight. And there's this brilliant horror thriller-esque element to the episode. <laughs> Uh -huh. It's still totally kid friendly. It's like not it's not super scary. But yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, holy crap. I totally forgot that when I was a kid, I was kind of afraid of mushrooms. Yeah, it was something that I forgot about until watching this episode. Did you guys like survey kids or something? And they're like, we're afraid they of that this. later. You know, when you put together the segments of like talking to kids, I believe there was some content coming in from the science advisors who would say, you know, sometimes kids are fearful of something just because it looks different. And, right. oh, that's an interest. So that's an interesting angle into a kid's story. Well, waffles and mochi look different, right? So for a while, we kind of played with that idea. There was also, I remember an area where we were thinking about, well, maybe this is a story about if one of them is afraid of the dark because kids are often afraid of the dark. But we landed in sort of a more general area of just being afraid to try something that looks creepy and different. And then right. also linking it to a Stranger Things sort of narrative or Stranger Things mood. Yeah. Partly because, you know, you have Higher Ground and Netflix working together and Netflix and Stranger Things. It's a natural connection. Yeah, and it worked great. It was a really, really fun episode. I liked it a lot. Another thing that this show does so beautifully, which you talked about a little bit, is the necessary but seamless highlight of diversity the show goes all over the world yeah it's in peru it's in japan it's in italy it's all it's all over this country and a bunch of other countries which is like so great mm -hmm. and you know opens kids minds to how other countries and other cultures use and play with these ingredients which i found really amazing because i love what all those other countries do with these ingredients but a lot of those i didn't find out until i was an adult right. to expose children to that at an early age and hopefully to get them to be excited to you know expand their palate yeah that's just really awesome you know even in the writer's room like as an adult without kids who doesn't cook that much there are moments where someone will say something about food and like you're sort of pretending like you know already because <laughs> you're, you're supposed to know these things right as, a, right, as an adult right. so like it, you know there I remember there was a bit about the three sisters which is um I think it's rooted in indigenous culture or the mm. idea around like rice and corn and I forget the third one it's like squash um, corn yeah, and squash uh, um yeah. And I, apparently that was a thing that other people knew about. And some of us in the room didn't. I hadn't heard that terminology before, but it's a really cool story that was then put to animation. I think it's in the corn episode. Yeah. I was always learning new things. And on top of that, one of our science advisors is named Allie Ward. She's a host of several different shows on TV. And she's basically built a career for herself as a science educator. And she has a podcast called Ologies 
And every week she talks to a different ologist, like a, a biologist, a psychologist, a, a volcanologist, whatever. And I met her on this show and then I've become a big fan of ologies through that. So I've gotten like a lot of bonus science knowledge <laughs> just off of working with puppets for a little while. That's amazing, man. Yeah, I really, I can't say enough good things about this show. I could probably talk about this for another two hours, but, <laughs> uh, but we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask, one question before we take our break, and that is working on this show. Did it inspire you to expand your palate, expand your cooking skills at all? It certainly made me more conscious about what I do put in my body. And it's interesting because it's not, that was not the intent. It's not a show that's supposed to push nutrition on you. But I think knowing some of the history of things and like how foods interact with you has made me more cognizant of my body as like a a machine to protect. <laughs> right. And it's funny because I told you yesterday I had a bad headache and it was because I realized I hadn't drunk enough water. And that was an ongoing theme in the writer's room. Everybody was kind of checking in to see like, I know somebody had a, an app on her phone, you know, that lets you know when you've had enough water. So I've fallen off the job on that. I have to do better with my, <laughs> my water intake. <laughs> Additionally, one thing I'm super proud of is that in the tomato episode, we did have representation of disability that I brought into the room because I knew about this restaurant that was run by deaf waitstaff and deaf business owners. It's a pizzeria called Mozzeria in Oakland, I think. And so we were able to put that in the show and teach Waffles and Mochi some sign language and show kids, both deaf and hearing, that deaf people are able to excel and run businesses and all that. So that was a really cool element that I'm glad we were able to include. Show kids and adults. Yeah. It's an excellent show. I've watched all the episodes and I intend to watch them again. This is the kind of show that made me want to have kids just so I could show them right, this, right. this show. I yeah. recommend everybody check it out, especially if you have kids. If you don't have kids, you can still check it out. Waffles and Mochi, it's available right now to stream on Netflix. All the episodes are up there and David and the writing team did a brilliant, brilliant job. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return... David is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Today, I want to urge you to see Judas and the Black Messiah. I went into the film knowing very little about Fred Hampton, and I left the film heartbroken and in love with him. It has a seriously amazing cast filled with some of the best actors working today. Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Dominic Fishback, to name just a few. And I love how the director, Shaka King, doesn't tell you the story. He shows you the story. I felt like I was living in the world with the characters. And even the horrible people, talking about you, Jesse Plemons and Lakeith, had depth. And though I hated them, I understood them. Besides J. Edgar Hoover, that guy is pure friggin' evil. It's also important to note that this movie was made by a big studio, Warner Brothers, but it didn't dumb itself down. It didn't try to pander to a broad audience. It has a perspective on how things were back then and how things are now. That Fred Hampton could have been the leader that changed the course of American history. 
But instead, Black people are murdered in the United States every day, sometimes by our government, because our country is filled with fear, anger, and the need to maintain white supremacy at all costs. If you haven't already, see this movie, see it in a theater if you can, and I can't wait to see Daniel Kaluuya win an Oscar in a few weeks. That was my minute. Thanks for listening. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with David Radcliffe. He's a writer on the show Waffles and Mochi. He's a member of the Committee for the Writers with Disabilities at the Writers Guild of America West. And he's about to give us three film recommendations, movies that have inspired him inspired his work. David, let us get your first one, sir. The first one is The Truman Show, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen, but I remember seeing that um, when it first came out and thinking what a complete idea it was. What a, what a fully mm-hmm. what a fully formed universe and thinking about, you know, the ways that I mean, for those who don't know, it's about a guy played by Jim Carrey who realizes that his entire life is a television show constructed around him by sort of a godlike figure. In a way, this was well before reality television or even, you know, the sort of social media that life that we live in. And in, in a way, that movie has been so prescient about how celebrities or, you know, people online sort of become constructs and devices. I still think about that movie a lot. I think it's, it was a really smart script and just really well executed and kind of a timeless idea that I wish I'd thought of. <laughs> it's honestly one of those movies that every time... I watch it maybe once every like five years because I love it. Like I remember seeing it when I was a kid when it first came out being blown away. Mm-hmm. But then you watch it, you know, after the internet and after reality TV comes and like yeah. you're kind of taken aback by just how ahead of its time it was, but still remains relevant, you know? Yeah. Even the little pieces of the sort of ancillary characters who are bored by what's on TV now because Truman's life hasn't been as exciting enough. So they just sort of flip to the next thing. Yeah. In a way, that movie is really funny, but also kind of a sad commentary on how disposable certain aspects of culture can be. 100%. I rewatched it last night for the first time in quite a while. And every time I watch it, I get something new out of it, or I like focus on something different. Like sometimes I just focus on the impeccable like craftsmanship of Peter Weir, because mm-hmm. I mean, like the creativity of the shots that he comes up with in this like world, there is not a single shot that hasn't been really thought about. Like, why would the camera be there? Right. Like, brilliant. Behind the radio of the car and all that sort of cool stuff. For yeah. sure. Yeah. But last night, for the first time, I like was watching it from like a more human level. And I was like, my God, this is really messed up. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this is a really messed up story that is happening to not only Truman's life that they're yeah. screwing with, but the other people that are like yeah, connected the to him, bring they're in. trying yeah. to get him to have a baby so they can do it to this poor baby. Also, it's like, right. my God, this is this is dark. And I think it's dark. another really good example from a writing standpoint of the villain, Kristoff, having a really fully developed argument for why yes. he does what he does. For sure. You know, he sees himself as Truman's protector, almost as a father figure, and he's convinced himself that the world that he's, you know, designed is safer for Truman than any unknowables, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a story of bad parenting. <laughs> which, 100%. Which is I guess yeah, I guess we're going to touch on a little bit later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess I should preface these by saying I had really great parents. I have great parents. So 
Any, any, yeah, because all three of your picks kind of have bad parents. <laughs> any themes of my choices have nothing to do with my own experience growing up. But yeah. This film also features, I just want to give a quick shout out to my favorite actor of the last 40 years, Paul Giamatti. My all-time favorite in uh, the last 40 years. Yeah, I almost put Sideways in this mix. Sideways Dude, is a great Sideways. One. Yeah. Oh my God, I love Sideways <laughs> so much. We'll, we'll have another. We'll, when I do a podcast episode dedicated to Sideways, because that's coming up, <laughs> oh, yeah? you're going to be my guest cool, for that. Cool. Okay, Truman Show, epic. If you haven't seen it, check it out. If you have seen it, it's worth a rewatch because it's still holds up yeah. like unbelievably well. Yep. Your second choice. Uh, a little bit of a gear shift, although thematically maybe not, is Amy. It's a documentary about Amy Winehouse, who at the time that I saw it, I didn't know much about Amy Winehouse. I mean, I knew some of her songs mm-hmm. and obviously recognized that she was talented. But I think what's really compelling about the documentary is the sort of gradual decay of her life relative to the people that she relied on the most, you know, her husband and her manager and her father. And I thought it was a really well-told story told in an unconventional way because it's a documentary without talking heads. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, voicemail messages and photographs and home video. And so it has a really intimate feel of this person who is like unquestionably ridiculously talented so that you can see her build a song kind of in real time, almost like it's nothing. And you see, you know, how much promise she has. But then you also see the the sort of shadow of drugs and the pressures of her job, of her ascent to fame and, and all this sort of thing. So it's kind of a cautionary tale about the music industry or maybe any sort of entertainment. Like you really have to have people around you that you can rely on. And I think whether you're trying to work in film or TV or music, there's this element of attraction to it because you think, well, once I get this job or once I get that job, everything's going to be awesome. And really, it's more about the foundation that you build within yourself to keep yourself safe and grounded and protected. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I I remember seeing this when it came out and it was... It was depressing, man, because it was, you know, like Amy Winehouse, as you mentioned, she was just so talented. I was a big fan of her music. And then to see this story kind of, you know, like without giving away too many spoilers, just to kind of see the story unfold the way it did. And it was just so yeah. like sad and unnecessary. Right. It, it was it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's not a happy ending. That's for sure. Yeah. And it makes you think also or made me think about all the talents that don't quite break through and mm-hmm. then blame themselves for not getting what they were after. And sometimes, you know, Sometimes getting what you want is not the blessing that you think it is, because if not for the fame that she found, she probably would have lived longer. You know, yeah, it's a lot of pressure for sure, especially for somebody so young. Yeah. Which, as you mentioned, thematically connects with the Truman Show also, you mm-hmm. know, and I was I was thinking about Michael Jackson. The other that was the other thing I was thinking about last night when I was watching the Truman Show. I was like, who? has been in the limelight, you know, basically since they were a baby, more or less. Yeah. And it was like, and Michael Jackson was like the one that I could think of. Jackson Vibe started, he was five or six years old. Yeah, it's a very very unnatural way. But, you know, from a kid's point of view, you probably look at it and see, you know, oh, he had like a theme park at his house. That seems awesome. And he got to like hang out with kids all day. And, (laughs) you know, as a kid, that probably looks pretty cool. But as an adult, you look at that life and it seems very isolating and sad. And again, he was somebody that was misused by the people in his life, by his family and by, you know, people that were drawn to his money and power and sort of warped some of his own psychology and, you know, the terrible things that came from that. So for sure, Amy, check it out. It is available to stream and available to rent anywhere. Also available at our good friends at Cinephile Video. 
both all these movies are available at Cinephile Video, Santa Monica Boulevard, right next to the New Art Theater. Show your local video store some love. Your third and final film, David. Third film is one that's out right now. It just recently came out this year or 2020. It's called Run. It is a terrific, very tight thriller about a young woman who's about to go off to college and she's a wheelchair user and she learns some sort of dark, makes some dark discoveries about her family and her relationship with her mother. I don't want to say too much without spoiling it, but it's kind of like a Hitchcockian early M. Night Shyamalan thriller experience. And it's also the first time in 70 years, over 70 years, that an actress who actually uses a wheelchair in real life has been in a thriller film. So from a disability perspective, it's extra interesting because it uses disability both as a way to make her feel a little bit more trapped, but also sort of motivates her ingenuity to get out of some challenging spots. It's cool to see like a a young, smart, driven, disabled character leading a a thriller film. Yeah, man. I watched this movie, as we mentioned before the show, I watched this movie today, not knowing diddly squat about it. (laughs) And I was not prepared for how good and intense this movie was yeah. going to be. I was like, whoa! Yeah, and from a storytelling standpoint, it's it's almost kind of a two-hander because there's really, it's a very limited cast. It's her and Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson plays mm. the mother. And so it demands a lot of both actresses and I think they both do a great job. Yeah, and not to beat a dead horse, but Kira Allen is just... Yeah, she's great. This is her first feature. Like, yeah. I don't know where she came from, but she really does a great job. I looked job. her up. She, does, she had done like one short. Mm-hmm. That's what IMDb says, like one short before this, which I'm going to look up and check out. But And that wasn't even that recent. It was like you know four years ago or yeah. something. She was a tour de force. Yeah. What's interesting is you mentioned first real life wheelchair user to star in a major thriller in 73 years mm-hmm. since Susan Peters in The Sign of the Ram. Have you seen The Sign of the Ram? I have not. I have not. So what's interesting is Sign of the Ram is kind of like the antithesis of this movie. She plays a wheelchair-bound mother who's trying to keep her kids in the house <laughs> to like keep them from oh, living. Really? And wow. this movie is the antithesis of that. So I thought that was very, that very interesting. interesting. Yeah, makes me want this to see This movie, it. I think, is far better. A lot of times what happens is, is non-disabled people get cast to play disabled folks. In fact, I just recently read a statistic that Rebecca Coakley shared. She's a, a disability rights advocate in Washington, D.C. She, apparently, she had crunched the numbers and found that if you play, if you're a non disabled actor playing a disabled role, you have a 50% chance of winning an Oscar in the pack of nominees. Wow. So, there's a lot of attraction to non disabled actors for finding those kind of roles. But there's really something, you know, extra special about an actor who is not only disabled on screen, but then is still disabled throughout like interviews and on the red carpet and just sort of making that aspect of life more visible. And also she had talked in a couple interviews, Kira Allen, about how she was able to inform decisions about, you know, the layout of the set or, you know, how the mother-daughter experience might play out because of her own disability. So it's really a value add to have her in this role. 100%. Yeah, there were things maybe just because I've been trying to inform myself more about, you know, the experience that, you know, somebody in a wheelchair goes through, you know, for the for the film festival, we try and like, Mm -hmm. make it as accessible as possible. But like, certain story elements where they like come, you know, it's it's, things are building, and then they like come to a point where the accessibility becomes like a thing. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, man, yeah, like, I don't know, I don't know how many people would pick up on that. But but, but I thought it was really smart. And just the grit 
of, you know, her having to do some of the things that she does to get yeah. to safety is like amplified. I mean, one thing I've, I've shared in a lot of different venues is, you know, most storytellers when they're staffing rooms or when they're building a film are looking for characters who are driven and are used to, to overcoming challenges or, you know, navigating dynamic social environments and so all the stuff that we typically want from our protagonist is stuff that disabled folks are doing every day anyway. <laughs> right. So it's, right. sometimes it's remarkable to me that we don't see more disabled people on TV because as Crip Camp shows and as Run shows, this is where a lot of inner strength comes from. It's a great thing to build a character around. Run. Check it out. It is an awesome ride and it is available right now to stream on Hulu. I highly recommend it. it, it <laughs> I, I, I hadn't even heard of it. So I was I yeah. was really kind of blown away. I was like, all right, well, let's see what this is. Yep. And uh, it surprised me. All yeah, right. it's great. Three excellent choices, David. Uh, appreciate you bringing those up for our audience to check out. Check those all out this week. David, Thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's fun. You always have a spot here. You always have a spot at the festival. We appreciate you taking the time out and your busy schedule to talk to us. Thank you. And thanks for keeping the festival going. I'm encouraged that it's one of the few festivals that I know of that incorporates disability into its view of diversity. So I've always appreciated that. And we're planning to expand that even further this year. So, you know, we'll keep you updated with that. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward. We'll catch you guys next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.